I'll just pretend that it's just you and me here and tell you my secret, which is I talk to students a lot about writing every day and making sure that they show up at the page on a regular basis. But my writing practice is actually kind of like binge writing. Okay. Um, so uh, I find the time around the edges of everything else. Um, I've always had to earn my living. Yeah. And writing, as you know, is not super lucrative. Uh, I've also started things like publishing companies and arts newspapers that didn't pay. So then I was earning my living doing these things and writing. I guess you think about a jar of marbles. There's a lot of room around the marbles, so you can fill it up with water, and there's quite a bit of water in there. Um, that's probably a really good metaphor for my writing practice. Hello there, my fellow sophisticated creatives. Welcome to JCV Art Studio from the dressing room. Ozzy is in and out of the dressing room today, so I'm hoping we, I'm not going to have a lot of feedback or echo. Uh, yeah, what a week, hey? I hope everyone is doing all right. So first off, we create this podcast on the traditional territories of the Ha-Lut First Nations. And today I have joining me Candace Jane Dorsey. Candace is a prolific, internationally known, award-winning author. In 2005, she was awarded the Province of Alberta Centennial Gold Medal for her artistic achievement and community work. And in 2017, the WGA Golden Pen Award for Lifetime Achievement in the Literary Arts. She was inducted into the City of Edmonton Arts and Culture Hall of Fame in 2019. Other awards include the Canadian Science Fiction and Fantasy Hall of Fame in 2018, the YWCA Woman of the Year Arts and Culture 1988, and an Edmonton Arts Achievement Award in 1988. She is a community activist and active. I honestly, people, I have had coffee. She is a community activist, advocate, and leader who has won two human rights awards and has served on many community boards and committees. Candace, welcome to the art studio here. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Oh. Now, I would also like to acknowledge that I am joining you from Treaty 6 territory, um, from Amiskwachewaskehegan or Edmonton, Alberta, a traditional meeting ground, gathering place, and traveling route to the Cree, Soto, Blackfeet, Blackfoot, Métis, Dene, and Nakota Sioux, and particularly where I sit, the Pappas Chase Cree people. Um, so I acknowledge the many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, uh, who live here, and we're all from uh, oldest heritage person of over 11,000 years heritage to the newest newcomer. We are all treaty people here together on this land. 
So uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to acknowledge that. And I am so delighted uh, to be with you here today in in cyberspace. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you, Candice. And you said that so well. That's so well. Yeah. So we are going to talk about your novels. And the fact that you're a writing teacher, is it at McEwen University? Oh, I teach writing at several places. And I teach communication studies at McEwen University. I teach writing at uh, University of Alberta Extension, Metro Continuing Education, workshops all over the place. I've been doing that since 1983. Excellent. And you're also an artist. I am. (laughs) Um, recently in the last, I don't know, 10 years, I've, I've taken up visual arts again. Yeah. So as people ask me, where do you find the time? Well, you know, I'll just pretend that it's just you and me here and tell you my secret, which is I talk to students a lot about writing every day and making sure that they show up at the page on a regular basis. But my writing practice is actually kind of like binge writing. Okay. Um, so uh, I find the time around the edges of everything else. Um, I've always had to earn my living yeah. and writing, as you know, is not super lucrative. Uh, I've also started things like publishing companies and arts newspapers that didn't pay. So then I was earning my living doing these things and writing. I guess you think about a jar of marbles. There's a lot of room around the marbles, so you can fill it up with water and there's quite a bit of water in there. Um, That's probably a really good metaphor for my writing practice. That's perfect. That's really perfect. And just one second, Candice. So Candice, I like that. You said a jar of marbles. I really like that. Uh, yeah, you just, and I like how you said you write almost on the edge. Did you say it was like on the edge of time or the edge of commitments? Yes. Yeah. Around the edges. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm driven to writing and I feel better when I write. I'm not, it's not a hobby or like, you know, it's not, it's my main thing, but life is such that. Um, it has to be uh, plastic and not rigid. Yeah. You know, if I had a different kind of life, I could, I could say, well, I write from nine in the morning till whenever, you know, but I don't have that kind of life. So, right. um, and, you know, I've been doing this for many decades. And while I haven't, I haven't written as many books as other writers, it's partly because I'm a slow writer. I, okay. I I things percolate in the background and they, they become known to me through typing. You know, I don't, I don't plot. um, I mean, I don't spend a lot of time in advance putting things down on index cards and putting the index cards on little clothespins across my study or anything. Uh, I know people who've done that and, you know, you, you can't really tell at the end how a book was written, yeah. right? The yeah. Spontaneous, relaxed books can be incredibly planned and really 
intricate plotty kind of books can be written off the cuff. So, um, you know, there's no one good way. Yeah. To write, but, but I'm slow, you know, I'm, that is, I had to accept that. I've written a scene on a napkin. Yeah. It's just whenever (laughs) that solution comes to you. Yeah, absolutely. So you've written sci-fi novels, mystery novels, Black Wine was your first novel, and it won an award. And can you tell us about that? Well, actually, won, it won several. It was, oh. <laughs> there's an old European proverb, something along the line of, if you want to be able to lift an ox, you start the day it's born and you lift it every day. Yeah. And I always think that that's how I got writing, because I started writing poetry and really short stories, and kind of worked up to novel writing and um and i remember the late marie jacober was a wonderful writer uh and a friend and uh, i remember telling her about this story i was writing that just wasn't wasn't i wasn't able to wrangle it it was bothering me and she said oh candace that's not a a short story that that's a novel Wow. And uh, <laughs> which is never always, which is not always good news, right? Yeah. Um, and so I just said, oh, all right, and just kept typing. Um, eventually, uh, various things that were completely unexpected came out of that typing process. And eventually I had a completed novel. And at the time, I was running a publishing company and um, I'd met this wonderful editor in New York, David Hartwell, and he he phoned me to, he, he was uh, uh, an editor at Tor Books, mm-hmm. um, and he phoned me to, to ask me to, to fill in something for one of my short stories for an anthology he was editing. I had to send a contract back really quick, and, and, and we're on the phone, and I said, you know, David... I'd known him for years by then. We we actually became very good friends. And, and I said, so David, um, while you're on the phone, I, I'd like to get some advice for you. I, I've had this novel. It's been sitting on the back of my desk for about a year now, and I haven't actually submitted it anywhere. Where should I send it? <laughs> there was this silence at the other end of the line. And, and this exasperated voice said, send it to me (laughs) (laughs) and I sort of went oh gosh right you're like like the most prestigious editor at Torah I I could send it to you (laughs) I had completely not sort of put those two together my friend that I had known from so many conferences and and this thing and so I did send it to him and he accepted it and the rest is kind of history and it won the Tiptree Award, which is an award for um, for uh, works that have something to say about about uh, the question of, of sex and gender in some way or another. Okay. And uh, and it won um, it won the Aurora Award in Canada and it won something else. Oh, it won the uh, Crawford Award, which is a, a first novel award given by the International Association of the Fantastic and the Arts and uh, funded, I later discovered, by the famous Andre Norton, whose who science fiction books were um, 
often the first books that kids and teenagers read. Uh, she was uh, uh, apparently lived in the area where the, the people who ran the IAFA were, and she funded this first novel award. So I got to go down there, meet all these great people, and they gave me an actual check with actual money, which was very cool. And and the rest, as they say, I guess, is history. That was some time ago and kind of interests me because I, um, I had that book come out and then a book called The Paradigm of Earth and a couple of short story books came out. And then I had a really long period where many things were happening and I was typing, yeah. but I wasn't sending stuff away. Okay. So, so in, in 2018, I had a book of short stories come out. Yeah. Cool. Called cool. Ice and Other Stories from PS Publishing in, in Britain, which yeah. is, um, which was a special limited edition hardcover with numbered signed copies and was very cool. And that was like my first book for, a long time and then um uh at the same time i i uh, got an agent for the first time ever uh yeah. and you might be familiar with his name because it's wayne arthurson who is a mystery writer and um i he knew i had these mysteries and he had just decided to start uh working as an agent as well as his writing and his other work and i said well let's give it a try and he was the one who made the deal with ECW Press for this current series of mysteries. Neat. So that's sort of how I, and, and now I'm in this very weird, it's almost like a career renaissance, like this very, this period where there are four books coming out over three years, plus uh, an anthology I co-edited uh, with Ursula Flug about uh, uh, speculative fiction stories with the theme of food is also coming out after, I think it's four years where it was sitting at the press um, because of budget things and so on. So all this backlog okay. from like 20, 2005 onward yeah. of, of writing is all just bursting out in the world right now. So do you notice a difference with you from writing? Do you notice a difference in you, the author, from when you wrote Black Wine to the author who is going to be having her your latest novel, What's the Matter with Mary Jane, which is being released in October. Have you noticed a difference in how? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Well, yeah. Um, the same year Black Wine came out, my father and my sister both died, and my sister's death was quite unexpected, and, and it really affected those of us who were remaining in the family. And um, my mother was elderly and she actually lived to be over 99 years old, but um, that meant a lot of years of sort of caring and I had health issues. And I think there was this period, I mean, one of the reasons I went back to visual art was because it was this period where there was a lot of darkness in my life, and I happened to be writing a novel at that time, not one of the mysteries, another one that my agent has now, um, that was really dark. It was narratively dark, and I just thought I didn't want to be in that space. Yeah. So I did two things. One of them was I went back to painting, in part to just discover what it was like to 
create something with no pressure to do anything with it. Yeah. Like just the raw create, create creation. And the other thing was I started writing these mysteries and the deal with the mysteries was there, there, there were rules. And one rule was there will be no angst. Mm-hmm. You will treat these works like freelance work. There will be no precious darlings. You know, you won't suffer for your art. <laughs> and I had been writing this very difficult book, and it was it was quite uh, it was quite emotionally draining. So, so the, and the second rule was, you know, I'd never written a book where I just started from the beginning yeah. and typed everything in order and got to the end. No, so I thought, well, let's let's play with that. Let's try that. Yeah. And let's try that in a sense recreationally rather than dead serious. Okay. And I was old enough, I think, that I could just abandon my my writerly angst, whereas I couldn't, okay. you know, yeah. I couldn't do that when I was a younger writer, and I I didn't do that. And I I I won't say these books are less important because I think that they deal with all the same themes that my books always do, but. I just wrote them with a more carefree attitude and I just let whatever went on the page, I, I let it happen without worrying as much. And as it happened, I, I found this very breezy narrator who was a smart ass who made a lot of jokes, who was a grammar nerd, who was streetwise, who lived in the same neighborhood basically that I live in. And, and she just kind of sashayed in and took over, and I discovered I was writing a mystery. Cool. And it sort of went on from there. It's like, okay, then. And it was actually one of the ways I had fun was I, I mean, you're a writer too, so you know that we have some pretty weird values for fun, right? <laughs> some of our values of fun are not are are not perhaps shared by the general populace, and one of them is, let me see if I can write myself into a corner and then write myself out of it again for fun. Yeah. yeah. So so you know when it was time for clues, I thought, what kind of clues are clues? You know what what kinds of things are clues? And for and if the, the dead person mailed herself an envelope full of clues, what kinds of things would be in it? And then I just typed this list. I had no idea what what was going on, who the murderer was, what the mystery was. But here, I just given myself, you know, 12 clues. That's and, uh, and so I kept having to revisit them through the book and say, okay, have I solved for all these clues? But I made that part the plot i would bring the list forward and i would have the people in the book discuss what was going on with the clues and obviously they shaped what happened but not in a really conscious way so it was just just me saying okay see if you can fix this one (laughs) so it, it, it was you know recently i've been thinking i might have emphasized the whole fun writing thing too much because these are these books have an underlying thematic seriousness. They're about real social problems. They're about social justice issues that I have worked on and continue to work on. They're about human rights. They're about a, a lot of things. But the narrator lives in that in that soup. You know, she doesn't think of it as an unusual environment, and she just sort of um, uh, sashays her way through it. So you know, when we were 
promoting this book, we kind of concentrated on the lighthearted, the, the, you know, smart ass narrative and narrator and so on. But I want people to understand that that's just the squeaky toy that they get to pay attention to while I sneak in under their radar and, and, and do some important work in, in, in terms of bringing, uh, things into perspective that they they may not have seen or heard about before right right I, I agree I agree now I'm reading the adventures of Isabel and I have to read the review I saw on Amazon and uh so with Amazon said it's on Amazon here it goes book one in a new playful and trope bending mystery series featuring a queer, nameless amateur detective. Candace Jane Dorsey's terrific mysteries are what would happen if Raymond Chandler and Frank N. Furter collaborated on Cozy's and the heroine were a pansexual private detective with heart, smarts, and a t-shirt saying, mascara is the new noir. Now, that was from Sarah Smith, author of the New York Times notable book, New York Times notable book, The Vanished Child. Your book, this book is, uh, it's so different and I am so enjoying it because it's different from what I have read before. I feel like I'm in the driver's seat of a Bugatti or no, sorry, you're in the driver's seat of a Bugatti and I'm in the passenger seat and you've just told me to buckle up, okay? <laughs> right? So let's talk about your nameless protagonist. Now, I have my idea why she may be nameless, but I wanted to know how did you come up with this protagonist and why did you want her to be nameless? Well, um, you know, I hesitate to say this because it's one of those writer things, but when I start typing and, and a voice emerges, I just, I go with it. Like, who is that? I want to know. So I let them talk more. Uh, not like Dickens, who used to actually physically see his characters on the street and mention it to his friends. I don't, I don't have that sense of, oh, the character is telling me the story, but in some sense they are like they, they, become dimensional through their voice so that's sort of where where she came from but the nameless part was actually um the subtitles of all these mysteries are a postmodern mystery by the numbers and and that's a joke because each section is numbered but but the postmodern thing i also put in as a joke but people are now reviewing it and telling me why it's postmodern and it may be that this is one of the things because I make a lot of comments and, and sort of satirical references to mystery tropes of the past. Yes. And of course there were several unnamed noir male detectives. Dashiell Hammett used to write them. Um, they were first person narratives and, um, and these, these guys, their name was never, ever mentioned, just alluded to. And so you never actually found out 
who they were and they stood in for everybody. You know, they were, except of course, they stood in for every man because they were all manly man kind of detectives. Whereas, you know, this is a, a queer feminist um, woman who, who gets to participate in these tropes in a in a an ironic or or a sarcastic way but she's nameless her city is nameless yeah. um it's getting more and more like edmonton the more i write about it because i'm starting to name check more and more local businesses but i did even in the first book i mean they go to eat at the hardware grill which unfortunately isn't there anymore but mm-hmm. it was a wonderful high-end restaurant in my neighborhood that was in an old hardware store okay. and it's a beautiful just wonderful food, gourmet food, beautifully done, and uh, and I I wish they hadn't gone away. But um, basically, it was important to me that people question some of those old tropes, okay, and and get a chance to say what's this about in in a new context. So to have her be the nameless detective. Um, obviously, it goes back, you know, a hundred years of, of detective stories, um, almost. But it's also it's also a new take, and it's an, a, a modern, ironic take, or postmodern, I guess I'll have to say, um, in which you just have to say, well, what's going like? What's going on here? What's it about? And interestingly enough, a lot of people, including reviewers don't get that she's nameless, even though I deliberately put a little thing at the end where her friend says, is your name Isabel? And she says, no, why? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So that people would actually be told that, that the title was about the poem, not, not the person. Okay. See, I'm not that far yet. Uh, okay. See, and I thought it, she was nameless. I took it as because she could be, anybody whoever whoever the reader wants absolutely right that's how i took it yes and you'll notice that there are there are descriptions but they're not really descriptions yeah like we know that she's not she's not as tall as some of the tall cops say for instance or uh but but she's taller than some of the other characters. We don't really know what race she is. We don't know mm. what color her hair is. We don't know anything about her. And in fact, on the second book, we had to be careful with uh, because there is an actual figure in an in a in a sort of private eye type overcoat, and we had to be really careful to make sure it was an unreal hair color, yeah. so that we still there would still be no clues. Yeah. So her hair is pink on the cover of the second book. And I love, I love that book cover. I, I saw, <laughs> when I saw that, I thought, whoa, this is cool. Yeah. yeah. So oh, the, the covers that, I mean, we fooled around a lot with other designs and it wasn't, we just weren't finding something. And we went back and forth a lot. And then all of a sudden they found this artist and everything just clicked. Yeah. And the, the series is going to be just beautiful. And we've even arranged it. I don't know about you, but when I put books on a shelf, they're in the same, they have the same design, but the little lines on the spine don't add, don't line up right. 
It -hmm. drives me nuts. So one of my things was, please, please make the dividing line in the cover at exactly the same point it is in book one. And they they said, oh, yeah, we totally get that. Don't worry. (laughs) So can you give us, for those who haven't read The Adventures of Isabel yet, uh, uh, a brief summary of what it is about? Okay, well, um, Nameless is hanging around the apartment on a hot summer day, um, listening to the show tunes her neighbor is playing, which she absolutely loathes. And uh, she's down to her last box of fish sticks, which the cat refuses to eat. And uh, she's been downsized a year before as a social worker and has run out of all her resources. And she gets a phone call from from a friend. Uh, and a mutual friend of theirs, her granddaughter's been murdered. Yeah. And she needs some support. So Nameless goes down to the morgue, an experience which uh, she never wants to replicate, but seems to happen to her in each book. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and her friend is afraid that maybe the police will take this kid's death not seriously enough because she's been uh, a street kid. A, a re- she's a recovering addict. She's a sex worker. Yeah. And so nameless, she asks nameless to, to get involved. She said she's too angry and she's too old and she needs someone to go and be the advocate for this kid. So nameless goes and does that. Uh, luckily it turns out that the cop that she's dealing with someone she's known a long time before in circumstances, that are never made clear because her past is a little bit nameless as well. Um, But um, he is really taking it seriously. But meanwhile, of course, things unfold. So the the poor dead kid just becomes the tip of the iceberg. And uh, as she kind of digs a little deeper, she realizes that the kid isn't dead because of some altercation on the street, but because... She basically met the wrong con artist at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. And uh, don't give it away. I'm not done. The that's book. all. <laughs> okay. Well, and that's all. I mean, so, so as with all of these stories, you know, it's the tip of the iceberg. And, and then she spends the rest of the book discovering what the iceberg looks like. And of course, she's not going to get away without change happening in her world so change happens in her world as a result of you know that would never have happened if she had taken this on well i love that you're referring to your protagonist as nameless i really do it's just different and in your writing i think it's i think now i'm saying i think it's chapter five i just know it has a five written by it and it's titled getting tight Catherine Hepburn and it's like you said the the murder victim's grandmother is talking about the father of the victim and you know just you write this sentence you'll write a lot well you write lots of sentences but it's this sentence where you have written you could spit through that guy's reputation like that is a mic drop. That is a, I want to say a beautiful sentence. And uh, talk to me about that line because I think it's great. And it's just like, I don't even want to say they're chapters. I mean, there's another 
further along, there's a seven and it's titled Prozac Tomorrow. So uh, talk to me about that because I think it is so cool. The line is so cool, cool and how the book is set up. Well, those are really chapters. Yeah. If anything is, well, it's, it's hard. The book is set up for those who haven't read it. Um, there are these overarching uh, sections that are headed with the the lines of the of the uh, Ogden Nash poem, The Adventures of Isabel. Uh, and many of us will remember Isabel met an enormous bear. Isabel, Isabel didn't care and so yeah. on. Right? Uh, and I had that re uh, recited to me when I was a kid. So, um, but then, you know, as I was writing it, it was simply, I would write a section and I just started to number them. And and each section is usually kind of, um, you know, a unit or sometimes it's a writing session. But uh, I'm, I have to say that, <laughs> and again, one, one shouldn't say these things, but there are some lines in this that I love a lot, even now, that yeah. make me laugh. Yeah. And, uh, um, and interestingly enough, that, that one wasn't... Uh, wasn't one of the ones that made made me laugh at myself, but um, I just I just decided that this this character is is just a, is a smartass and and has a really quirky way of of looking at the world and and that we were going to hear that. Um, I'm just looking for. Uh, and, and the other thing was that in titling these sections, um, I also just had a lot of fun with things like um, song titles, yeah. quotes from things. For instance, when we get to section 12, um, the title is I'll have it in 50s and 3s, which is um, – a reference to an old Stephen Leacock story we actually studied in school. Okay. Um, where, if, if you remember, um, Stephen Leacock had a sort of everyman character who was always kind of bumbling through life. And, and the story was of him getting a, a paycheck mm -hmm. for $53 and taking it to the bank to open a bank account. And the bank is big and imposing and the manager is imposing and this guy is very rattled. So he opens the bank account and he deposits the money. And of course, this is a long time ago. So $53 was a lot. Um, and he forgets that he was only going to deposit 50 and he was going to keep $3 for his, you know, weekly or monthly expenses. So he deposits the whole amount and the manager sort of questions him about it and he gets so rattled that he gets defensive and says yes absolutely so then then he's going to withdraw the three dollars that he that he deposited but he accidentally writes 53 dollars on the withdrawal slip so then the the cashier says you know 53 dollars and then again he's rattled he says yes yes she said well how, how do you want it sir and he says i'll have it in 50s and threes Mm -hmm. okay. so it's just this this old story so um she goes to the bank um i thought about that story so i just threw it threw it in there mm -hmm. um 
there's a couple of things. I'm just I'm just leaping through actually as as we talk because it's a line that that I love a lot. Um, the the protagonist has mailed a, a a brown paper envelope full of clues yeah. to herself, yeah. and and the mail arrives and and here's this here's this letter and it has this list of things in it. Um, and of course our protagonist opens it first, but calls the police. Yeah. Um, and, and her friend, Roger, the police guy, um, uh, comes along and takes the evidence and she asks Roger why this is a little envelope of white powder. Yeah. In the envelope, and she asks Rod, Roger, "Why don't you do that thing they do on TV, where you lick your finger and touch it to the powder, and then touch it to your tongue?" Nope, nope, nope. And, <laughs> and he's and he says, "I don't have much of a life, but what I have, I like." <laughs> and uh, um, the funny thing was that I wrote that before the fentanyl crisis. Yeah. But these days, if a, if a bag like that contained carfentanil and you put enough grains on your tongue to get a taste, yeah. you would die. Yeah. Right. So I actually had to update that um, with a little footnote or something. But I still love the moment when I was typing along and I typed that line. I don't have much of a life, but what I have, I want to keep. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And yeah. A writer understands that when you write a line and you like it. And like you said, you love it. Right. And it's, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I'm, I really am enjoying your writing. Um, it's like I say, it's different. It's edgy. And um, I just wanted to make a note because I know I've spoken with a, a writer Carol Ann, my dear friend, Carol Ann, and she and I had this conversation and she said, okay, I've, I've, I've writing my book and I look at what is supposed to be a cozy and I look and my book doesn't quite fit that, you know, label. And I've, I've looked at what uh, a mystery is supposed to be. And my book doesn't quite fit that label. And she goes, I'm not I feel like I'm not following rules. And I, I said to her, I said, forget the rules. Just throw the rule book out the window and just focus on your story. And I get maybe, you know, and I, I get that. I, tell me I could be wrong, but I get that with your novel that, you know, it's it, maybe that's what, that's what I like about it. Because like I say, it's different. It's edgy. I mean, nameless. We have nameless. Okay. You say a downsized social worker. And um, so I'm curious to find out who are your influences? Like when you started writing, um, did you have, like who, who were your writing influences? Who were the writers that you liked reading, their, their stories you liked reading? Oh, so many. Yeah. Um, really, I mean, I, I read a lot of mysteries. Yeah. for pleasure and some of them are really what my friend reg would call um four b books which is beach um bed 
bathtub and bus. <laughs> uh, uh, but some of them are, are are pretty deep and solid. I mean, Sarah Smith's books, it, it blows me away that she was willing to endorse the book because she is such a brilliant writer. And so, uh, but I've read everything, you know, Ag Christie and yeah. Dorothy Sayers and, and Dashiell Hammett and, you know, all the, all the, the, the tough manly men like, uh, Alistair McLean and stuff who were all sort of thrillers. And, and at the same time, I'm also reading a lot of feminist work and in speculative fiction. Yeah. Um, you know, I started writing seriously as an adult in, in the seventies and I had a, a prof, Douglas Barber, teaching poetry actually but he was doing at the time he was doing his phd thesis on several speculative fiction writers and so he turned this on to these writers joanna rust and samuel delaney and they were all and, and alfred bester and ursula Le Guin, and they were all really pushing the edge to the envelope and, and I, I later had the great fortune of meeting both uh, both chip delaney and ursula Le Guin, and, and um that was, you know, really exciting to meet some of my heroes. But in the seventies, we were a lot of us were hippies and we were we were radicals of one kind and another. We were out to change the world. And so the edges of things got very blurred. You didn't you didn't work within genres, you worked at the edges of everything that you could. And and I don't think that's ever really changed for me. Okay. Um and I got to say too that my first serious job was as a childcare worker with teenage girls. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the, the, the girls were First Nations kids who were, uh, and Inuit and Metis who were heavily overrepresented in care, which I later found out was basically because they were 60 scoop survivors. Oh. And, um, and, but all these kids, no matter, what their heritage had been really pretty much horribly dealt with by families, by systems, by institutions, by social workers, whatever. And it just made me so mad. And people used to say to me, but you must be getting all these great stories. And I have to say to them, there's stories I'll never be able to tell because yeah. no one would believe them in a book. But when I get to, to the, 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 the kid in the, in the book, um, I can start to take some of, I mean, I, I, my whole writing career, I think, has been fueled by, in part, by the anger that I, that I, the sort of righteous rage that I accumulated then. Mm-hmm. Um, but in these books, I can start to really bring some of that out of, out of my subconscious. But that's like a lot of years later, right? That's yeah. a long time later. It took a long time to get into my subconscious and then come back out again. And, and, you know, still there are stories of those days that should be told, but they can't be told in fiction. They have to be told by bearing witness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you, in the section, I didn't want to say chapter. Um, I'm just, uh, it's, you're using fiction and how you get across this image and what is happening is 
I'm just, I'm not even going to talk about it anymore. I'm just going to read what starts with the bear was hungry. Okay. If that's all right. Absolutely. Okay. So like I say, I can't even explain you. You've just people, if they hear that, they just hear this. The bear was hungry. The bear was ravenous. 19. The stories of the street are mine. The inner city is a hungry beast feasting on the lives of children. Jail bait pickups sucked into silver Lincoln Continentals so that sexually incontinent old tourists from the burbs can spill their worthless lust into people they consider as disposable as the condoms they use to protect themselves from infection. They drive home sated and smug, believing they've outwitted the street once again, not knowing that the street has their number. The kids have learned much more from them than they have learned in the transaction, and unable to imagine that the human beings they leave behind as trash have more to say to the universe than their rich, white, and much more trashy clientele. Bravo, Candice. Mm. That section, I read that, and I just, you know, I put the, I've put the book down, and I just thought, wow. So I'm thinking that some of that has, was any of that coming from? Oh, absolutely. That yeah. came right from that time. You know, we had a, a little kid there. She was the youngest kid we ever had. She was 11, but they didn't know where else she could go. So she came to us yeah. and she'd, she'd been an abused child and she was finally made a permanent ward after 11 years of basically getting wailed on by her mother. And then social workers would take her away for three months and the mother would promise to do better and dry out. And then it would all start again. And finally at 11, she's a permanent ward. She comes to us and yeah. she used to run away and go downtown near the army and Navy, which was still open then. And, um, these, these guys, these horrible old men would, she would go with any of them for yeah. sex. If she could just get a hug and, or something of a present, one of them bought her a $5. I remember it was white, fake patent leather plastic belt from the army and Navy and traded and she had sex. I mean, it was awful Yeah. because of course her self-esteem was in the toilet and all she wanted was someone to love her. Well, needless to say she was, she, she became pregnant at 11 years old. Oh. I mean, and just to make it worse, um, the night before she was to have her abortion, her Catholic social worker went to visit her in the hospital and convinced her that it was it was murder to have an abortion. Oh my! God. And so we had her through her pregnancy, and then this social worker set her up at the age of twelve with yeah. a baby oh in an apartment by herself. Oh my God! Well, needless to say, the baby was in care. And she was back in care within months. You know, it was it was a doomed enterprise from the beginning. She had no parenting. I mean, her idea of parenting was, and I quote, I'm going to have my baby 
and I'm going to love my baby and my baby's going to love me. Oh God. And you just, you look at the kid and you think, Oh kid, yeah. what's going to happen the first time that baby poops? Yeah. What's going to happen the first time it cries and won't shut up? Yeah. You know, all you have for mothering is when she was apprehended, the social worker came on a, on a scheduled visit and found the mother wailing on her with a two by four. Jesus. Feeding her with a two by four in the dining room. Like, like, who? I mean, yeah. I don't even, you know, we, we obviously have this moment of silence for this, this little kid. This, so, you know, what did she have to bring to parenting? And so the, you know, and so this social worker gets all righteous and, and screws up her life. Yeah. Even more than it's already been screwed up. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, what happened to her baby? I mean, I I will never know what happened to her. I don't know, but I I guarantee you that, that it wasn't good. And I met some of the girls from there later as women later in life. And, and saw how they had pieced their lives together and I admired them as kids because of their courage and their audacity and their their ability to continue to talk back most of the time. And this yeah. little girl was kind of a, a, an anomaly in that she was already crushed, but the rest of them, man, they were in your face. They were just great. Mm-hmm. And these adults that I met had put their lives together in really wonderful ways. And I thought, you know, how how brave it is to come from that kind of thing and and make a life and some of them became parents and they were good parents and even though they had not been well parented and had been abused in foster care and all sorts of things and and you think the, the resilience you know and that's part of what I want to write about in these books is quit writing off the people who are really proving themselves to be the most resilient yeah. in the face of terrible disasters. In the third book, I have you know, residential school survivors and, and street people who have become homeless through no, no direct fault of their own. And, and I have a lot of um, people like that in my neighborhood. And some of them I see more than I see my friends, yeah. you know. And and I just want I want people to understand that you know we're all as the UN Declaration of Human Rights says we are all equal in dignity and rights. Yeah. We may not be equal in abilities or opportunities or what we do with our opportunities or uh, or in our um, problems, but we are all human, and, and there's not there's nobody who should be thrown out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, Candice, I have to wrap this up here. This has been an amazing <laughs> discussion. So, where can people find you? Where can are you? Do you have like, you know, a social? I don't want to say a so. Who knows? You may have a social media presence. I don't have a, a big social media presence, but if people want to find out more about you and your books, is there? Do you have a website they could go to? Well. Um, it's under construction. Okay. And that's that's a long story that I am not in the slightest bit 
interested in <laughs> boring okay. you with, but it's under construction. The the mystery novels are published by ECW Press, okay. and so they can be found in the catalog. The second one I've just proofread, and and so it's on schedule for October of this year. Um, I've also got a book coming out from Inanna Publishing called The Story of My Life Ongoing by C.S. Cobb. I really got to start with shorter book titles. Um, and it's the story of an intersex teen and uh, the tribulations of a friend of theirs. Um, and it's told as an epistolatory novel, all all in letters and emails and oh, wow. reports and transcripts and things so that one is also one that I've had around for a while and uh, I'm really pleased with so um, that can be found in Anna which is I-N-A-N-N-A press Um, and I am on Twitter and Facebook I'm on Facebook under my whole name Candace Jane Dorsey you have to spell it right C-A-N-D-A-S and um, and I'm on Twitter as at C-J-D writer so capital CJD, small letters, right? Okay. And um, and so that's where I do most of my social media stuff. I've also got a Candace Jane Dorsey at art page for the for the uh, visual art, but I don't update it often enough, but it's a start. You can okay. get a sense of what I'm doing there. I will make sure those are in the show notes, okay? And um, the website will be... CandaceJaneDorsey.ca once it's there. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. Well, Candace, thank you for joining me. That was great. Uh, I feel like we could talk for hours and we should sometime, but um, thank you for inviting me to the podcast. And I really, I really hope that people enjoy it. Yes, me too. Me too. And uh, you have a good day writing. Or, you too. or or creating art, whatever whatever you, you like to do. You too. Okay. And, uh, and we'll talk more. Okay, Candice. 